listener production. Does your child react badly to mozzie bites? Or have you ever had to treat a blue bottle sting? Australian parents really need to be across bites and stings because basically everything in this country can bite or sting you. This is Mother Doctor Nurse, our 12-week special series tackling the health and safety of our children. On this episode, our experts answer your questions about bites and stings. Feed, Play, Love with Sarah Hunstead and Dr Deb Levy. When my son was small, mozzie bites would swell to the size of a 20-cent coin. Perhaps you have a child who has the same reaction, or maybe your concern is what happens if they get stung in the ocean or walking barefoot across the lawn. The truth is, in Australia, these things happen every day. In this episode of Mother Doctor Nurse, paediatrician Dr Deb Levy and paediatric nurse Sarah Hunstead are answering all of your questions on bites and stings. Sarah, Deb, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Hi. Let's get stuck into this because, um, yes, Australia is a country where we come across these things all the time. And our first question comes from Rachel, who says, which jellyfish stings require vinegar and which should you not use vinegar? Why are they different? I didn't even know this was a thing. It's, it's a thing. I, I think I might be a little bit more excited than I should be about this episode. <laughs> You're <laughs> excited about all the weird things, Sarah. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But I love talking about jellyfish and anything that can bite and sting you in this country of ours. So when it comes to jellyfish, rather than go into all of the specific jellyfish, because I'm not a jellyfish expert, but I know my first aid. So generally, we divide it into tropical and non-tropical waters. So what that means is generally, if you are swimming in tropical waters, and that's why you should always know where you are when you go holidays, you should always research before you go and find out what creatures live there so you can be prepared. If you are in tropical waters, then generally um, those jellyfish stings uh, need uh, vinegar. The exception to the rule is the blue bottle or Portuguese man of war, which uh, I think we've got a question about that later. So maybe I'll get to talk about urine then as well. Uh, (laughs) But generally in the more southern waters, so the non-tropical waters, you don't tend to get those stingers that require the vinegar. Okay. Well, given that you raised it, I am going to bring up that question, which, by the way, is from an anonymous member from Sarah's family, (laughs) which says, got a blue bottle sting on my foot, so decided to test the pee theory. Didn't work for me. Does it actually work? Sarah, I know that you want to answer this question. Is this you? Did you try this theory out? It's from your family. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I believe you. No, it actually wasn't me, but it was a person who may or may not be in my immediate family and we'll leave it there. No more identifiers. Okay, well, tell us, is it true that if you wee on a blue bottle sting, does it stop it from hurting? Unfortunately, no. No. Yeah, I was going to say, just let it hurt. I'd rather let it hurt than have my husband wee on my leg. Like, seriously. (laughs) Can't you wee on your own leg, though? You you can. That's a very good point, Deb. You can. Depends where you are, whether you're ready to do it. But it doesn't work anyway, so we don't have to worry about that. 
<laughs> I knew this was going to be my favorite episode. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay, so short answer is no. Why? Okay, the theory behind it kind of stems to the whole what you should do with blue bottle stings, which is immersing them in hot water. Technically, urine is warm, yes, and so it may find you know you may find it has a little bit of a soothing effect. But one, it's not quite warm enough. Two, generally, you don't have enough of it to make a good effect. It's not going to stop that uh, that jellyfish sting from being painful. So the answer is no. Apply the appropriate first aid, please. No wee wees. Okay, so what is the appropriate first aid for blue bottles? It seems to change all the time. So Australian Resuscitation Council guidelines and also the Australian Venom Research Unit, which is from the School of Biomedical Sciences in the University of Melbourne. These guys are legends. They just live and breathe venom and have got (laughs) the best. I know, I know. Have got the best evidence-based advice. I'm pretty sure they have probably peed on their own feet at some stage as well. So... (laughs) Um, What you need to do, ideally, first of all, you are going to rinse off the stung area with copious amounts of seawater. So not fresh water, seawater. Any remaining tentacles you can pick off very, very carefully, making sure that you don't get stung. And then what you're going to do is apply hot water. Now, when you're at the beach, probably don't have a whole lot of hot water with you. So you absolutely can apply ice to the stung area purely for comfort until you can actually get to the hot water source. Once you can access hot water, make sure that it's not hot enough to burn the person or the child, but it is quite warm. So you submerge the stung area for 20 minutes at a time. So put it in for 20 minutes, take it out for 10, back in for 20 minutes and do that for up to two hours. And what it actually does is that hot water it actually just stops those um, stinging cells if there's any left from firing. And also it actually denatures the venom. So it kind of deconstructs the venom. So it's, it's one of those things that it's actually not just helping with the pain, it's actually helping with what's going wrong with the body. So it's pretty cool. And if your child or yourself is allergic to blue bottle stings, of course, that is triple zero ambulance immediately. If they have swallowed the blue bottle and it actually happens. I mean, I can't think of anything worse that actually just makes my skin crawl. No good. But any stings inside the mouth, inside of the nose, to genitals or really sensitive areas, or any of those stings that are what we call circumferential. So they go right around a limb or around their neck, things like that. So they're the types of stings that need medical help, but otherwise it's the hot water. Deb, I have a question for you about jellyfish stings and blue bottles. So a few years back, I was swimming on the central coast in New South Wales, which is not tropical waters, right? And I got stung by what we think was a jimbal, which is a member of the box jellyfish group, but not obviously a box jellyfish or might not be here to tell the tale. And I had heard of lots of different people being stung by them. They were quite common at that particular time that I was swimming. But for me, I ended up with a ridiculous, like it blew up. It looked hideous. I still have a scar on my leg from it, which was two years ago. And when I was talking to my sister about it, she said that she's reacted in a similar fashion to blue bottle stings where her skin just 
just went nuts. Is there something in our skin that would potentially react differently to stings that might be very mild and treatable in some children, but with other children, they just, for some reason, react? And not in a way that's um, necessarily life-challenging, but just more extreme. Well, I mean, you even see this with mosquito bites. You know, every child reacts differently. We react differently as adults. And um, I have found it difficult to knock down exactly which kids are going to have these bad reactions. Certainly your children with the atopic family history, and what I mean by that are children with a history, whether personal history or history within their family of eczema, food allergies, asthma, hay fever, Um, You know, one would think that those children are primed, but it can just be out of the blue. You know, and if I look at my family there, I have two children, it's myself and my husband. You know, my one daughter reacts terribly to mosquito bites, but no one else does. So, um, although interestingly, I did as a child, but I've outgrown it. You know, so I think that there's a lot out there that we go, well, we don't really know why, and which I think brings us to the the importance of, you know, knowing how to prevent these bites and stings as best we can, <laughs> um, and then how to effectively manage them. Okay, well, we'll get on to prevention in a minute, but I just think this is worth following on with a question from Corey about the mosquito stings. Corey says, my two-year-old reacts terribly to mozzie bites. They swell up and have yellow in them. One, do we need to get her seen or is this just how some people react? And two, how can we prevent and treat the bites? So let's start with one. Deb, if it swells up and has yellow in it, does that is that something that needs to be treated by a GP? Look, not necessarily. I think that it's very common for children to have a local reaction to a bite. You know, in other words, the mosquito bites, I'll go backwards a little bit and explain exactly how the reaction happens, just because that helps also with knowing how to effectively treat it. And when when mosquitoes bite, they actually um, drool some of their saliva onto the skin. And I know, pretty gross. And um, it's the reaction to that mosquito saliva that we're seeing. That's what causes the itch. And that's also what your child can react to locally. You know, which brings us to, um, you know, one of the treatment things is actually wiping that off or washing that off to try and minimize that. So it's very common for children when they have that insect bite to develop that localized reaction. That can then progress. So what do I mean by that? It can either progress to a phenomenon called papula urticaria. For, um, and what that is, it's an allergic reaction to an insect bite where you actually get lots of these bumps, not just where the insect has bitten. They're incredibly itchy um, and red raised bumps. You can also get a larger local reaction to where that insect bite is. And that would be perhaps what this mum is explaining, um, some yellow. Which, the yellow is really just showing that your body's mounting an immune response to something. Um, and there might be some surrounding redness. It's very important to monitor that. So the tip that Sarah and I always give families with bites is go and get a felt tip pen or a sharpie and draw around the area. The reason being that we can then monitor if that redness is spreading. If the redness is spreading, we are more concerned. You know, so I think those would be some of the things that I would recommend watching out for in terms of 
encouraging you then to go and seek medical care. And in terms of treatment, we'll get to the prevention in a minute, but in terms of treatment, I know I'm a parent with primary school age children. I've tried all the things under the sun. Um, I know what works for my kids. The the two kind of things I, I see available for these sorts of bites are either, um, well, good old fashioned calamine lotion, which I haven't used in years, or something that has a gel that's kind of cooling. And sometimes I've seen those sorts of gels or creams with an antiseptic in it. Do you have a preference for what you would use on a bite or let's, let's stay with mozzie bites. Obviously stings are a bit different. Yeah. Um, I'm pausing because there are actually quite a few things you can do. And first of all, I guess the question is, well, why are we doing anything? It's, it's to make our child feel better in terms of the itch. So really we're trying to control the itch, not only for our child's discomfort, which is incredibly valid, but also because scratching a bite can mean that um, that skin then becomes broken, which then can become secondarily infected with a bacteria and go on to something like cellulitis or, um, you know, a more significant infection of the skin. So I guess that's the why we're doing it. Then on to the what can we do. There are topical things and then there are oral things. So the topical things can be something as simple as a cool compress. So something cool is going to help not only decrease any inflammation that's there, but it can also um, numb the area a little bit. So apply something cool. The other part is all the creams and lotions and potions you can get. I do think it is a little bit of trial and error, and um, you will find the ones that work. I found the one that's worked for my kids and... What is the one that works for your kids? If you mention brand name, Siobhan, I'm very sorry. I've actually mentioned <laughs> brand name. As a pediatrician, you can't. I can't. Um, but I will say that it's an Australian product and you can pretty much get it everywhere. When you put it on the skin, it goes white, but it's not calamine lotion, which actually doesn't think <laughs> works very well. Um, so... It can be something that's purely for the itch. It can be something that's um, got a steroid in it, which can help with the inflammation. Or you can go down the path of trying to make something yourself and using something like bicarbonate of soda. Yes, the bicarb that you use for baking or cleaning, whatever you use it for in your house, you can make that into a little paste, put that on. Some people swear by honey. I've never tried that. To me, it just falls into the sticky, icky basket. And I'm like, <laughs> it's also antibacterial. So I guess there's a, a role for that. Um, you know, so there are a whole lot of topical things you can, you can try. And then moving on to the oral aspect. So I guess this would be for children who have more significant symptoms or multiple bites. And the go-to here for bites would be an antihistamine. Bearing in mind that... Um, your child may not be old enough for them. And if they are younger, I would certainly, you know, go under the guidance of your healthcare provider in terms of how much to give and how often you can give or which one to give as well. Sarah, I know that you talk about there's some really simple ways to prevent bites. One that comes to mind for me that I have experienced even this year is to make sure around your house or where you are that you don't have little pockets of water is that one of the ways we can try and reduce the amount of mozzies around our house? 
Yep, it absolutely is. I actually did this two days ago after the rain that we've had in Sydney. I went round uh, the house and especially down the side of the house where you forget all of your little empty pot plants are and I turned all of them up and I even hosed out my bromeliads. Um, I'm a bit of a plant nerd. I love my plants and because <laughs> there were the bromeliads are plants that hold water and there were heaps of little wrigglers in there. So going around and making sure that your backyard isn't breeding mozzies is really helpful. And of course, mozzies are more active in the early morning and in the evening. So making sure that if you're going outside that you, you and your child have got long sleeves, long pants on. Uh, there are certain things you can use to repel mozzies as well. And rather than go into that, if you are in an area that there are lots of mosquito-borne diseases or you are traveling to a place where there are certainly mosquitoes that are carrying lots of diseases that you don't want you or your child getting I encourage you to go to the Royal Children's Hospital website that goes into all of the different types of mosquito repellents I will pop a link to that so everybody can have a look but ideally you can be using something that's a physical barrier like the long sleeves and the long trousers Using something that is a little more natural as well, uh, such as uh, there are lots of things you can get, uh, you know, candles you can burn in the backyard and all sorts of different sprays that can actually work really, really well, which have just got um, herbal ingredients. Uh, but one of the things that I actually don't know if it works or not, and Deb might know the answer, but there's lots and lots of theories behind it, is having a fan going in a room that that actually, whether it diffuses your scent that the mosquito is finding. I think it or, blows them away. Or if it blows them, I don't know the answer to this, but it's something that I have read about a lot. Uh, so Deb, do you know the answer to this one? No idea. <laughs> But, but you know what? I'm going to step in as the non-expert and say, anecdotally, that works. And you know what? If it doesn't push away your scent, if it doesn't blow the mosquito away, what it does do, it's so loud you can't hear that bloody mosquito, <laughs> which, let's be honest, is the thing that bothers us the most and stops us sleeping. So I highly recommend the fan. <laughs> Very good. And at the end of the day, putting a ceiling fan on or having a fan that's in a safe spot with your child, it's not going to do any harm anyway. Yeah. And just before we move on, I will say, I know most parents listening to this would be the kind of parents that would look at what's in the ingredients on a bottle, yes. but especially with insect repellent, there are some really oh, yeah. toxic ones out there. Yep. And there are. as a young woman, I went to South America for a long time and I... <laughs> took a bottle of Rid with me because it was a country with lots of mosquitoes and, and diseases that come with the mosquitoes. I used that Rid like it was moisturizing cream. And it was only after that I looked at the ingredients and thought, oh my God, I've just shortened my life by 20 years. So, you know, just be, <laughs> just be aware that of course there are the ones with natural ingredients, but just check with insect repellents that it's not absolutely to your kid. and the thing is sometimes when you are traveling especially with little kids and we did this we packed up the kids went around australia in a uh, in a basically in a tent for three months went to places where most of the time the stuff without the toxic ingredients was all we needed 
that was it. There were a couple of places that we went where we needed to get the heavy duty stuff out. One, because uh, there were public health warnings in those areas about particular mosquito borne diseases. And the other stuff wasn't working because it was literally like you would eat mosquitoes when you just inhaled. Like, and so that was the time where we did need to get the big guns out. But of course, as soon as we were back in our tent, we'd be washing that off and so on. So it's about weighing up at the time, you know, what you need to do. I love that this is such an Australian program that we could spend that long talking about mosquitoes. (laughs) And I feel like there's probably more we could cover. But um, look, let's, let's move on to another very Australian question. This comes from Ruth. She says, is it true that white tip spiders can cause your skin to rot? I have heard it can go away and come back. That I I don't I don't even like asking that question. I can tell. Look at Sarah. She's got like sparkles in her eyes. She can't wait to answer this one. Go on then. Oh, thank you. Well, okay. This is such a controversial question. Um, I love it. So looking at, uh, there's a lot of research that's gone into this and it's really, really interesting that there is still a bit of a question mark there. So when it comes to white tails, they've been implicated. I think they got a bit of a bad rap, really, um, because... <laughs> really? Yeah. So the ulceration that um, I think we're talking about here is necrotizing arachnidism. And uh, forgive me if I haven't said that correctly. It's a bit of a mouthful. And what it means is that there is breakdown of the skin and ulceration and, and the tissue kind of around where the spider bite kind of dies. And it's really not a good thing. It's actually, you know, reasonably really? serious. A- <laughs> if, no, it's not. It's not good. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a good thing, no. Sarah. <laughs> so... Um, one of the theories is is that whitetail spiders actually do cause redness and blistering around a bite. And it's wondered if that can be mistaken um, in the general public for uh, ulceration as well. So reports of this might be a little uh, more extreme than what's actually happening. And it was really interesting that in the early 2000s, there was a study done on these bites, 130 confirmed whitetail spider bites, and not one of them ended up with um, ulceration or necrosis so really jury's still out are they causing that probably not there are some studies that say that other spider bites can do it too so the answer is the majority of bites don't actually result in that but they can absolutely end up with blistering sorry what about the bit of it coming back no idea about that that I looked up, I couldn't see anything about that. So um, unfortunately, can't answer that part of the question. Deb, do you have anything? No, I was just thinking, Sarah, this this may be a great opportunity just to remind people in terms of little tricks to help identify spiders so that when they go to the hospital or the healthcare provider, they can actually describe them. I mean, do you just say, take a photo? Like, what do you normally do? So ideally, yes, you can take a photo, but so many uh, spider bites aren't actually witnessed. Um, Generally, it's when it's like a funnel web or a mouse spider or one of those big black spiders that people go, no, it was a big 
black spider um, because you generally know when you've been bitten by one of those. But when it comes to the little ones, often they're either squished pretty quickly into a little pulpy mass um, or it's it's not witnessed at all. So ideally, yes, if you can take a photo, that's awesome. There is a brilliant app as well called Spider ID that you can actually snap a photo of the spider and it will tell you what one it is. So definitely download that. But while we're on the subject of apps, the best app ever is the Australian Bites and Stings app. It is uh, written by our friends at the School of Biomedical Sciences, the Australian Venom Research Unit, and it basically has every single creature in this country of ours that could bite or sting you, what it looks like, the signs and symptoms of the envenomation, and the first aid, what to do about it. It is so cool. And helpful. (laughs) At least Sarah thinks these things are cool. I want to stop talking about spiders. I'm feeling... I, I just, no, I just want to move on. So let's talk about this, ask this question from Chloe. Chloe says, my dad has mentioned that brown snake babies are actually more venomous than adult ones because they can't control how much venom they release. Is this true? So I believe it is an urban myth. Now, not being a snake expert, but somebody who got really excited at this question because I got to go and read all about snakes and so on. Um, Apparently, this is a myth. The legend is is exactly as what Chloe's dad has said, that they can't control how much venom and so therefore more lethal. However, the evidence actually points to the fact that when you think about it, a adult snake has got more venom. It's got larger fangs. And so therefore, in theory, even though it can choose how much venom it is going to give you, so they can do a dry bite, they can, because remember, the idea is, is that it's defense. They, you know, you know, they don't want to waste this precious venom on you. They just want you to leave. Um, Stop bothering them. So in theory, an adult snake probably would have more capacity to render you not very well rather than the little ones. So the little ones, uh, yes, absolutely, they can kill you, but are they more venomous? Probably not. Um, I think a good follow-up question from that one from Chloe is a question from Nick who says, what is pressure immobilization technique and when to use it? He finds that confusing. Okay. So the pressure immobilization technique is what to do if, one, you're bitten by a snake or your child's bitten by a snake, two, that includes sea snakes too, by the way, two, if they are bitten by a funnel web or other big black spider like a mouse spider or so on, or they're bitten by a blue ringed octopus or a cone snail. So they are the only creatures that you use this for. So no other spiders, not a red back, none of that. And the idea is, is that with the venom that comes from these creatures, it actually gets transferred not through the blood initially like we thought. So I don't know if you remember that it used to be you'd cut the bite side open, you'd suck the venom out, and then you'd (laughs) tie a big tourniquet around there, hopefully tight enough to stop any blood flow and that the limb would turn blue really quickly. None of that works. What we want to do is we want to compress the lymph system because initially the venom is actually traveling around in the lymph. So the idea is that if we apply pressure to the limb, 
with a bandage and we immobilize the limbs so we're not moving around at all, it is going to slow the flow of that venom and buy us time to get help. So a pressure immobilization is a heavyweight bandage. That's the pressure immobilization bandage. You apply it. If you're bitten on a lower limb from the tips of the toes to the top of the hip, all the way up, no matter where you're bitten, on an upper limb from the fingers all the way up to the shoulder. And you're going to put that on nice and firm like you would for a sprained ankle or something like that. Then you're going to immobilize it, keep them still and make sure that help is coming really, really quickly. And we've got some great videos on the CPR Kids YouTube channel that will show you exactly how to do that because it's really hard to describe on a podcast. I was going to say, I think we need some video evidence. We'll put links in the notes of this episode to that. Deb, I want to ask you this question from Mo. Mo says, how can you tell between just a bad reaction and a serious allergic reaction to a sting or a bite? It's obviously the degree. So um, a bad reaction is, sorry, I'm just using your terminology, is going to be a localised reaction. So I think that that's probably a better way of looking at it. Is it localised or is it systemic? So in other words, is it staying in that area of the skin or is it spreading to the rest of the body? For those of you who listened to our last podcast, I went through a few um, signs of of allergy and anaphylaxis because that's really the signs that we're looking for here. And just to recap a few of those, we are looking for difficulties with breathing, whether that may be a change in their voice, they become hoarse, coughing, wheezing, labored breathing. It could be a change in their level of consciousness, becoming pale and floppy. They could develop severe abdominal symptoms, so that could be pain, vomiting. You know, so these are the signs that we're looking for in terms of whether or not they're developing anaphylaxis. It, it really becomes quite obvious in in terms of um, whether or not your child is going to develop that. Well, ladies, those are all the questions we have, and I have to say, Debbie's off for the rest of the season because she's going on holidays. I am. <laughs> which is very exciting for Deb. We will miss you, but thank you so much for all of that input over this season of Mother, Doctor, Nurse, and we'll see you when you come back. Great, yes. But otherwise, thank you both for your your answers this episode. It's been lots of fun. Thank you. That was Sarah Hunstead and Deb Levy. As I mentioned, Deb is away now for the rest of this season. However, Sarah is back next week and she is dying to answer all your questions about vomiting and diarrhea. That's just the kind of girl she is. I don't think I need to elaborate. If you've got a question, you know who you are and you can email us at eplaylove at sca.com.au. See you soon. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love, a listener original podcast. If there's something you'd like to learn more about, email me at feedplaylove at sca.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. For more great kids and parenting podcasts, check out the listener app. And don't forget to follow us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.